Father, how thankful we are tonight to know that Jesus saves experientially. It's not something that we've heard about or that uh, people talk about, but it's a reality in our hearts and lives to know that we have been born again. We realize that there is no name under heaven whereby we can be saved other through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you're here with us tonight and you're what it's all about. And we love you and we praise you in the midst of your people this evening. This is a special occasion as we gather together tonight to hear your messenger. We've looked forward to it. This, in a sense, is a historical occasion for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you've allowed all of us to be here tonight. Bless this service, bless our speaker, and bless each one who is a part of this service, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I'm almost 70 years old, and so I've, I've been around the church, and I've been able to enjoy the history of the church. And one of the things that I would like to expose all of you to as much as I can is some of the things that have made the church what it is today. And uh, we had a missionary that uh, felt in his heart that God wanted him to go to Africa. The Church of the Nazarene had not, at that point, developed a mission program in the early 1900s. The man's name was Harmon Smelsenball. He felt called to Africa. And so without the support of the church, Harmon Smelsenball went to Africa and wound up in Swaziland. And there the story began. Today the Church of the Nazarene is strong in Africa primarily because of the vision and the burden of Harmon Smelsenball. He had two sons, or a son and then a grandson, who has also carried that vision on. Harmon Smelsenball III is with us tonight. He and his wife, Beverly, served 41 years in Africa. He actually grew up in Africa, and uh, he, uh, he grew up around the fires of the Africans, and, and he basically talks with that oral ability to describe something that is a part of his tradition. I just felt it was important that all of you have a chance to hear this missionary and at General Assembly this last year, I met him uh, in the floor of the exhibit hall, actually, and we began to talk about the possibility of him coming, and he indicated his willingness to do so. And I, I was so pleased that he was willing to put us into his schedule. And along with that, he indicated that uh, there is a story that he wants to tell that I want him to tell. I've heard it, and I want you to hear it. And it won't be done in normal chapel time. That's all right. I think because you need to hear this story tonight. It's good to have not only Brother Smelsenball and his wife, but also to have other missionaries from Africa. In our community, we have people who have worked for us on campus but served many years in Africa, and that would be Bill and Juanita Moon, who sit right over here. And uh, so uh, it's always a joy to have the Moons here, and such wonderful people they are, been friends of ours for many years. As I talk to the missionaries this morning, once again, I would like to say to them that these are men and women who have sensed the call of God primarily. We do have guests from the community. We welcome you. Good to have you here tonight. And I have great respect for these people because they are here because God has spoken to their heart. And uh, I think that uh, you're going to enjoy them as much as they're going to enjoy you. This evening, we're honored to have Harmon Smelsenball III. Welcome.
reading to you from the 13th chapter of Hebrews these words. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. The missionary brought his message to a close in the little stone church on the mission station. He opened the altar for anybody who wanted to pray to come forward. A tall, proud, young Swazi warrior stood to his feet in the deep shadows cast by the little kerosene lantern. He raised his hand and in a deep voice he said, Missionary, I accept this Jesus that you speak of. And the missionary beckoned to him, come on down and let's talk to him. And the young man stepped forward, laid his six-foot war shield down, his spears, dropped to his knees, bowed his shaggy head, his white ostrich plumes, humbly at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus came that night and reached across the log that served as an altar and lifted the chains of superstition and fear and darkness and witchcraft and sin that had bound this young man. He came to his feet, the tears streaming down his dark cheeks. He stood there in front of the people trying to wipe these tears away. They just seemed to come faster and he could get rid of them. And finally, when it came his turn to testify, he thought he owed the crowd an apology. I must tell you, he said, there's no pain. You can't hurt a Swazi warrior enough to make him cry. And yet these tears, it's just this thing that the missionary has told us about. This God has come in and he fills me with peace and joy. And there's no law in our land that forbids a man to cry for joy, is there? The tears flowed freely down his cheeks as he testified to what Jesus had done in his life. He left the church that night, six miles down the mountain. At dawn the next day, he was standing outside of the hut of the chief of the entire area, his father. And when at last the old man got up, this boy was right there. Father, I would speak to the people today. As the eldest son of the chief, heir to the chieftainship, he had the right to speak to the people. But the people had already scattered for the day. Some had gone to draw water. Others had gone to get firewood, herd the cattle, work in the gardens. The father got some of the herd boys together, and he scattered them to go round up the people. It took till nearly noon before the entire village was gathered together again. And the father turned to his eldest son. What is it? that you would say to the people, he asked him. And the young man stood in front of them, Father, I have disobeyed you. I've broken the laws of the tribe that you laid down. I've been up there to the mission station where we were forbidden to go. But Father, this God that that missionary preaches about when he passes through our village, he is real. He is alive. I know for last night, I too spoke with his God. He started to testify. Fear filled the eyes of the old chief. He turned to one of the boys that was standing next to him, a young warrior, a half-brother to the man that was testifying. 
Listen, he whispered to him. I don't know what's happened to him, but go get the witch doctor. Up over the hillside dashed this boy to go find the witch doctor. In a little while, he was back with the old witch doctor. They sat down at the back of the crowd. I don't know who had ever taught this young warrior anything about the doctrines of Christianity, about things like making restitution. But he knew that if he was ever going to get down on his knees and face God in prayer, there were some things in his life he was going to have to straighten out. Father, you remember that calf that disappeared three years ago down by the river that we said a crocodile had taken? Yes, I remember that. You remember those goats that disappeared that we said the hyenas were getting? Yes, I know about them. The chickens that we said a python was, yes, I remember them. I'm the one that did it. There were others involved, but I'm the one that instigated it. Last night, God forgave me those things. I beg your pardon now, and I seek time from you so that I can repay you for them. The old witch doctor had never seen anything like this before. He stood to his feet. Truly, this young son of yours has fallen under the terrible spell of that missionary. The entire village must be redoctored again. They set about the ceremony of redoctoring the entire village. One of the boys, a half brother to the man that was testifying, one of the boys was sent to go get a black goat, a goat without a blemish or a mark on it. Its throat was cut. And the blood was caught in a wooden dish. It was passed around to every member of the village. Each person had to dip their finger in it and touch it to their tongue as a sign of allegiance to the spirits to which it had been offered. The meat was cut up. It was put into a pot. Herbs and concoctions were poured into the meat and onto the fire. On with the ceremony they went. They took ashes from the fire. They sprinkled them on all the footpaths leading into the chief's village. Any witch coming that way would meet this invisible barrier and they would be protected from them. They took ashes. They sprinkled them on the pegs on top of their huts to keep from being struck by lightning. They sprinkled them on the pegs at the corners of the gardens to, to ward off famine and drought in the country. At last, late in the afternoon, the meat was cooked. Now each member of the village had to eat a tiny bite of this meat. By eating a bite of it, they believed that the spirits to which it had been offered would gain entrance to them and could permeate and protect them from the inside. Around to each member of the village they came. They reached this proud young warrior. He leapt back. No. No, I can't do that. I no longer worship these spirits. I no longer fear these witches. Father, it seems that somehow I've managed to disgrace the tribe. Better that you send me away. And the old chief turned on his eldest son. All right, he shouted. Get out. Leave. You're vanquished from the Swazi people. You're no longer my eldest son. Leave forever. The young man turned to leave, and the witch doctor grabbed him. No, he can't go. Wherever he goes, 
The witches will gain entrance to this village through him. He must eat this meat. The father turned to four of the young warriors standing next to him, all of them half-brothers of this young man. Grab him, he shouted. They pinned their elder brother's arms behind his back. They tried to force him to eat the meat. He clenched his teeth. They flung him to the ground. They tried to pry open his mouth and force the meat in. He clenched his teeth until in a fit of rage, the chief turned on one of the boys. Get the shambuck, he shouted. It's a criminal offense in Africa to use a shambuck on a man. A raw bullwhip made of hippopotamus hide tapering to a point 12 to 14 feet long. The shambuck was brought. One of the boys took four wooden pigs, a little round river rock, pounded the pigs into the ground. They strapped their elder brother down with rawhide thongs. The old chief stepped forward and he brought that great lash whistling down across his eldest son. His back, his limbs, blow upon blow, and each time the whip fell and rose again. It ripped through the flesh to the bone, leaving an open wound, until at last the whip simply thudded down dully on his unconscious form. The old chief stepped back. Water was brought as consciousness came to him, and he sat up. The witch doctor was there. Just one bite. Just one bite. Not a tear dimmed his eye now. I won't do it. Turn him over, the chief shouted. They rolled him over in the gravel, strapped him down again. And as the chief stepped forward, the second eldest brother, a young warrior in his early 20s, took the whip from him. You're old now. You're tired, old man. Let me have it a while. And with all the strength of his youth and the jealousy of his position in the tribe, he brought that great lash down across his elder brother. His chest, his limbs, his face, blow upon blow upon blow until once more the whip simply thudded down dully on his unconscious form. The old chief stepped back. Leave him there, he shouted. He'll have changed his mind by morning. We'll see what he says about this god of his tomorrow. The chief turned to the witch doctor. Stay with us tonight. Protect us from the spirits out there. The witch doctor turned to the people of the village. Get to your huts, he shouted. No fires tonight. Don't come out after you reach your hut. The people turned and fled to their huts. Darkness fell like a heavy blanket across Africa. Nine, then ten, eleven o'clock that night. In one of the little tiny doorways to a grass beehive-shaped hut, a tiny face peered out into the night. It was the eight-year-old sister to the warrior who lay on the ground. She studied every shadow in the village until she was sure nothing moved. Then she ducked through the doorway, leapt to her feet in the pale moonlight, flitted across the yard, dropped to her knees beside her elder brother, 
a slash of a knife and he was free. She grabbed the broken piece of a pot still filled with water and splashed it on his face. He sat up, saw who it was. Through thick, swollen lips, he whispered to her, if they need me, tell them they can find me at the mission station. No, no, I can't tell them anything. If I tell them, they'll know I had something to do with it. I'll get the beating you were to get tomorrow. She turned and flitted back across the yard, dropped to her hands and knees, crawled through the doorway into her darkened hut, curled up next to the embers of the fire on a goatskin in the hut. He crawled over to the edge of the stockade, pulled himself upright, took a walking stick out from among the poles, and staggered into the ten-foot elephant grass that surrounded the village. It took him all night to climb six miles up the mountain. But at the first pale light of dawn, he staggered into the mission station. At first, the missionary didn't recognize him. And then when he realized who it was, he started to scold him. Don't you know? You're a Christian now. We don't go to these beer drinks. The people have beaten you to within an inch of your life. It's a miracle that you're here. We don't do these things once we become Christians. Slowly, he brought a hand up. And in a voice that was barely audible, he said, Missionary, it didn't happen that way. They sat him down under the shade of the thorn tree in the early morning light. The missionary called for disinfectant and water in a big white basin. And all through the morning hours, he washed away the caked blood and the gravel and tried to patch him up as best as he could and the young warrior sat there in total silence until at last they had done everything they could do and the missionary went to stand up and the, the young warrior reached out and stopped him. And in a voice that was just a whisper, he said, Missionary, last night as I climbed this mountainside, many, many times I would have to sit down in the darkness and gather my strength to keep climbing. And missionary, as I sat there alone in the night, I looked down deep inside of me here. He was still there, missionary. He was still there. They didn't drive him out when they beat me. He didn't desert me. Tell me, missionary, can they ever drive him out of my life? No, you're the only one that can drive him out of your life. As long as you walk with your hand firmly in his, they have absolutely no power to touch you. They are not stronger than he who has set you free. Missionary, I've got to go back to my people and tell them of a God who loves us so much that nothing can separate us from his love. They scooped him up 
and they carried him into the kitchen of the mission home. It wasn't much of a home. I remember it when I was a boy. It was 22 feet long and 16 feet wide, and it was made of rusted sheets of corrugated iron standing on edge. It had a dirt floor and only one door, and just inside the door, there were three large rocks on the floor, and they built the fire between those three rocks and cooked their food there. And they had two wires strung across the inside of that room and burlap curtains. And at night, they would pull the burlap curtains and make four little rooms out of it. Right beside the fire, the missionary's wife laid down some skin blankets, covered him with them, tried to keep him warm, started to nurse him back to health. For two or three days, they didn't know whether they would succeed or not. He just lay there, didn't say much. And then on the morning of the fourth day, when they got up, he had already blown the embers of the fire into flame, and he had put some twigs on it, and they knew he was going to make it. Within a week, he was crawling outside the kitchen, and he would sit there against the sheets of corrugated iron and warm himself by the early morning African sun. Within two or three weeks, he was on his feet with the help of a walking stick as a crutch, and he was in and out of the house there all the time. And by the end of a month, he was everywhere, all over the mission station. And then one morning, he came walking into the kitchen, the missionary and his wife were seated on the floor eating their hard cornmeal porridge. He turned to him and he said, Missionary, I want you to teach me to look into this little black book and have it speak to me the same way it speaks to you. Missionary tried to explain to him, We're too busy. Don't have time to teach you how to read. Wait a minute, missionary. There are many of us young people that have now fled to the mission station here. Let us help you with some of the work around here. Then you will have the time. They called an immediate council of war. All the young people came in, and they assigned chores to everybody. It fell a lot of this proud young warrior to gather firewood for the kitchen and to wash the dishes. Just a couple old tin plates and knives and forks but you never saw dishes get washed so good in all your life. He was there by the hour. Early in the morning, they'd all be finished with their work. Down to the little stone church on the mission station, they would go. Missionary's wife taught them how to read. They learned the alphabet, reciting it in unison. A, B, C, D, then counting. One. Two, three, four, over and over and over, repeating it. He became the proud owner of his own little black book. Back to the kitchen he came to wash the dishes. He propped it up in front of the dishpan, and he started in. And then it would slow up, you know. He'd get to sounding away, letter by letter. He'd sound away. Why, there was a verse. That was a verse. He'd say it over to himself, and he'd say it over again, and then he'd get blessed washing dishes in the kitchen. He'd call the missionary's kids in from the yard. Little old kids, 
six, seven years old, barefooted, short pants, no shirt. He'd line them up in the kitchen in front of him, their little clay oxen that they had made in their hands. And he'd say that verse to them. He'd make them stand there and repeat it after him. Then he'd say it over to them again. Then they'd have to repeat it after him again, over and over and over. Dad used to tell me that when he was six and seven years old, he remembers standing there in the kitchen and saying those verses over and over and over so that they could escape and get outside and play with their little clay oxen again. I don't know how much he ever learned to read. I do remember being there at camp meeting years later when he was old and blind and they brought him up to the platform and he stood there in front of the crowd and he quoted a text out of the Old Testament and our fingers flew through the books to try to catch up and he started pacing back and forth verse after verse after verse after verse, chapter after chapter after chapter, book after book, fast as the eye could follow. Never pause, never hesitate. Got to put it down inside here, missionary, so that if I ever get separated from the book, I can still tell my people about this love that he has for us. He finally served his two years of probation the day came for him to be baptized and taken into the Church of the Nazarene as a full member of the church in Africa. As he went down to be baptized, he had another request. I don't want to be baptized under my heathen name. My heathen name has awful memories for me. I want a new name. What do you want to be called, they asked him. He said, I read back here where God spoke to a young man. I want him to speak often to me. And when he does, I want him to call me by a familiar name. From this day on, call me Samuel. They took him down and they baptized him by the Christian name of Samuel. From that day on, his name was Samuel. I don't know a living missionary, and I've known them all, that accurately remembered his heathen name, filled with one great consuming passion to get back and start preaching to his own people. He met and married a fine Christian girl who had fled to the mission station. Impatiently, the two of them waited for an assignment. By this time, in the history of our work in Africa, the missionary had received his commission from God to start opening up the fever belt that lay at the base of the Obombo Mountains between there and the Indian Ocean. Weeks at a time, he would ride his horse down off of the mountains where there was no malaria into the malaria belt, preaching in the villages until a chief would give him permission to start a church. Then back he would come up into the mountains, get a young couple and take them back and start a church, ride his horse off in another direction, get permission from another chief. Samuel and his wife waited impatiently for their name to be called. Knowing Samuel's impatience, one Saturday morning, missionary had been gone for about three months he came galloping his horse into the mission yard. 
He never even got out of the saddle. As he came bursting into the yard, he started to shout, Samuel! Samuel! Samuel was out of the kitchen like a shot, wadding up his apron. He came sliding up to the horse, grabbed the, the bridle. Missionary, did you call me? Is it me? Yes, yes. I've got a place for you to preach. It's way down across the bush felt. It's on the other side of the Kamadi River, on the slopes of the Obombo Mountains. It's in old Chief Sutuga's country. Chief Sutuga. Samuel's eyes grew wide with concern. Missionary, don't you know who Chief Sutuga is? He's an uncle to the king of Swaziland, Sabuza II. He's famous in our entire world over here. Famous for one thing. Every day, he flies into a rage, and anybody unfortunate enough to be caught by his spears dies by the spear that day. I know, Samuel. I've spent weeks camped in his village. I've seen many a man die of, of the spear. But last night, when the sun sank and only the tips of the horns of the cattle could be seen above the horizon, Chief of Suduga called for me and I sat at his campfire with him. And he gave me permission to start a church in his country. What must we do, Samuel? Missionary. If Chief Sudduga gave you permission, God made him do it. We'll be ready in a little bit to go. Monday morning, at the crack of dawn, saw them as they packed everything they owned in the world, an old gray army blanket, an axe, a wooden spoon, and a couple old black pots, a little tin trunk with some clothes in it, their pack donkey loaded down, down the winding trail with the missionary, 35, 40 miles on the other side of the Kamati River on the slopes of the Ubombo Mountains. They cut back the long grass. They drove poles into the ground. They wove reeds. They left a little square at the back to serve as an open doorway. There was no door to hang there. They left a little square on this wall over here and another one over here on this side, and then they plastered everything with mud. They put a thatched roof over it, and then they stood out there in the middle of that yard, and they had a dedication service. Just the three of them, Samuel, his wife, and the missionary. There it is, Samuel. There's your church. All of Africa lies before you. The name of Jesus has never been preached on the Ubumbo Mountains here. See what you can do about it. And Samuel set about the enormous task 
of carrying the name of Jesus to the mountainsides of Africa, preaching and praying in the villages, down by the river where the women washed their clothes and carried their big clay pots of water balanced on their heads, high up on the trails on the mountainsides where the men herded the goats and cattle, down in the gardens where they hoed their corn, day after day, all day, on the footpaths, preaching and praying with the people. And the months rolled by, and six months came and went. And then one night, in the little stone church, there were six or seven people that had gathered. And, the chi and, and Samuel opened the altar, and one of those women came forward and prayed. And then another one, and another one. And slowly but surely, each person wrestled individually out of darkness. It started to happen. Samuel's wife had her first baby as the year came to a close that year. There were seven or eight Christians in the church by now. At the time of the heavy rains, one Sunday night, there were maybe 30 people gathered in the little mud church. Samuel brought his message to a close and he opened the altar, anybody that wanted to come down and pray. And among those who came down to pray, one of Chief Msutuga's wives was among them. Samuel and his wife knelt beside her, helped her pray. Back up the mountainside she went to the chief's village. She stood in front of him. I'm a Christian now, chief, and I won't do the things I used to do. I won't grind your snuff for you anymore. I won't cook your beer for you anymore. I won't participate in your wild heathen dances anymore. I'm a Christian, and from this day on, my life is going to reflect it. That night, Chief Suduga stormed into the outstation. He was beside himself, froth flicking from the corners of his mouth. Samuel, I don't care what you do in this country, but you leave the people of my village out of it. Do you understand me? Yes, chief. Yes, chief. But chief, keep in mind, this is God's house. Only God has the ability to turn people away from his house. If you feel that way about the people of your village, keep them up there. Don't let them come down here. All right, the chief shouted. All right, I'll do that in future. That's just one. There's still 27 other wives. I'll just forget about that one. Back to his wives up there, he stormed. Samuel carried on with the building of the church. They continued to grow. The heavy rains came to a close, and the crops were in. They were up waist high one Sunday night, the close of the service. The altar was opened, and among those who came down to pray, a second of Chiefum Suduga's wives was among them. Samuel and his wife helped her pray. Back to the old chief she went. I'm a Christian now, chief, and I won't do the things I used to do. I won't grind your snuff for you anymore. I won't cook your beer. I won't participate in your wild dances anymore. I'm a Christian, and my life is going to reflect it. That night, Chiefum Suduga and a group of his warriors stormed down into the outstation. He was beside himself. Samuel grabbed his wife and little baby, and they took refuge inside the open door of the church. 
Samuel, I told you to leave my village out of it. Yes, chief. Yes, chief, you did. But chief, you promised that you would keep the people of your village up there. Now it appears that you can't control your wives and you want to blame me for it. All right, we'll forget about those two. There's still 26 other wives. Back to his wives up there, he stormed. Samuel carried on with the building of the church, and they continued to grow. The harvest came at the end of that year. By now, there were 25 or 30 Christians in the little mud church. It was starting to get really full. And then one Sunday night, at the close of the service, among those who came down to pray, a second, a third of Chief Umsuduga's wives was among them. She knelt and prayed. Back to the old chief up there she went. That night, Chief of Suduga and about eight of his councilmen stormed into the outstation. Again, Samuel grabbed his wife and baby, took refuge inside the church. The chief was screaming at the top of his lungs, totally incoherent, froth flicking from his lips. And when at last he wore himself down to where they could understand him, he was screaming, Get out of my country. It's finished, this business of God. Get out of my country. I'll be merciful with you because you're blood kin to me, because both of us are related to the king of Swaziland. I'll be merciful. I'll give you exactly one week to pack your stuff and get out of my country. It's finished. If you're still here next Sunday, and you ring this bell to call these people together. I'll be up here on this mountainside, together with my warriors. We'll come down here into this churchyard. We'll pack you and your wife and your baby into this church, and we'll set fire to it. We'll see if your God can walk on fire. Get out of my country. Words swept like wildfire. Across the African grapevine, Chief Umsuduga had read the ultimatum to Samuel. Monday, Tuesday, the baby strapped to her back, following her husband down the footpaths as she had every day, preaching and praying with the people in the villages. Wednesday, he knew it would be useless to take off and walk 40 miles up the mountains to the mission station. The missionary wouldn't be there. He'd be way down in the fever country somewhere, trying to open up another church. And he'd walk 40 miles back, not having received the advice that he was seeking. And so as the weeks started to slip past, he spent the nights in prayer. What must I do, Lord? What must I do? and he stayed with the work that God had given him to do. Thursday, everywhere he went, the people whispered. Nobody wanted to get too close to him. What are you going to do, Samuel? Are you going to ring the bell? I don't know. I'm waiting for God to tell me what to do. But if the bell rings, don't be late for church. Friday, and then it was Saturday, and the week had come and gone, 
and God had not spoken. All Saturday they walked, covering about 20 or 22 miles on foot, preaching in the villages. Dusk fell and a huge African harvest moon climbed out above the mountains. It was dark and moonlight by the time they got back to the outstation. They had fasted virtually the entire week. The baby was crying. She turned to Samuel. Stark shadows of the thorn tree branches lay itched on the ground at her feet. And in a soft, low voice, she asked, Samuel, what are you going to do? Tomorrow's the Sabbath day. Do you want me to fix something to take along the way and, and we could take the baby and they couldn't catch up to us by dawn? Listen, he told her. Fix something. Take the baby and flee for your life. You can cross the Kamadi River before they discover that you're gone. They'll never catch up to you before you get to the mission station. I'll stay here and ring the bell tomorrow morning. She looked at him in surprise. Oh no, Samuel. God put us into this work together. God intended for us to stay in it together. And I'm not leaving here until he tells both of us to leave. I'm going over to the church, he told her. And I'm going to talk with God until he talks to me tonight. He watched his wife as she walked through the moonlight to the low doorway of her little grass parsonage. He saw her as she dropped onto her hands and knees and crawled through the low doorway to put her baby to bed on a goatskin beside the fire. He walked over to the back of his little mud church. No door to push open, just an open square in a mud wall. He stepped inside. There were no benches to stumble over. No lights to flick on, just moonlight streaming through the square in a mud wall on this side and splashed across a log, the only furniture in the building that served as an altar. He found his way down to the front of his church, lifted his voice in prayer. What must I do, Lord? What do you want me to do? If I take my wife and baby and I flee to the mission station, what's going to happen to this flock that stays behind? And Lord, if I stay here and I die tomorrow morning, what's going to happen to this flock? Tell me what to do, Lord. What do you want me to do? Our after hour, Samuel stood before the throne of God. Outside, a huge tropical moon started to climb. High over the top of that little thatched roof it rose. And Samuel stood before the throne of God. What must I do, Lord? Tell me what to do. 
until at last the moon started to drop down the far side. And the moonlight streamed through a mud square in the wall on the opposite side of his church. And dawn lay just beyond the mountains. Samuel stood there in the darkness and he heard a sound beside him. His eyes came open. He turned. He could see the reflection of the moonlight on the tears on her cheeks. He didn't know when she had slipped in during the night hours to back him up with her prayer. But there she knelt. And when she heard her husband stop praying, her eyes came open. And in a soft, low voice, she said, Samuel, Samuel, why do you stop? Has God spoken to you? Has he told you what he wants you to do? For a long moment, Samuel was silent. And then she saw him as he started to nod his head, just a dark shadow against darker shadows. And in a deep, low voice, he said, yes, just this moment God has told me what to do. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. And Jesus must have walked into that church about that time because they had an old-fashioned camp meeting, just the three of them, marching up and down. She was waving her headscarf, shouting and praising God. Samuel had his commission. Ring that bell. Ring it, Samuel. If you must ring it right to the gates of eternity, I'll walk every step of the way with you. I want you to ring that in the early gray light of dawn. He hung around at the back of his church till he found the big 18-inch iron bolt with which he pounded the plowshare that hung from the thorn branches in the thorn tree outside. He dusted the sand off of it. He wasn't going to ring it yet, but he wasn't going to be late when the time came to ring it. Up and back and forth in front of his church he paced, up and down on the huge granite rocks on the mountainside. Little clusters of people were starting to gather. They watched in silence over the long elephant grass as Samuel paced back and forth in front of his church. Up and down he paced. He didn't have a watch. But he knew that when the sun would reach a certain place in the branches of that thorn tree, it would be time for the morning service to start. Higher and higher that tropical sun started to climb. Inch by inch, Samuel spit on his hand. He clasped that iron bolt way up there in a great fork of the tree. The sun finally clicked into place. Samuel sailed through the air. He landed under that bell. And with all the strength in his body, he brought that iron bolt down on that plowshare. A sigh like the wind escaped from throats across the mountainside as the people stood on their granite rocks and they watched him. Samuel's, Samuel's feet never seemed to hit the ground. Dust rose in clouds around him. Chief from Suduga sat up back of him up the valley, his regiment of warriors behind him. He shook his head. 
This day I will make an example of that man that will never be forgotten in the history of Africa. He turned to his regiment of warriors. He shouted an order. They leapt to their feet, their white ostrich plumes waving in the wind, the red light of the rising sun flashing from their spears. They leapt forward, their Zulu war cries rolling down the valley ahead of them. Samuel never heard them. He had one thought, ring this bell. He was pounding that bell with every ounce of... It swung back and forth. Samuel followed it. His body glistened silver with perspiration. The dust hung in a cloud around him. He never saw them that day as they swept down that mountainside. He had one thought, ring that bell. Saturday afternoon, the day before, at the mission station, 40 miles away, just as Samuel had expected, the missionary was gone. He had been gone for weeks, late Saturday afternoon, his horse walking, his evangelist, Joseph from Quenaz, walking beside the horse, holding the bridle. The missionary swayed back and forth, almost delirious from malaria. He came into the yard, and everybody came running out to help. They helped him down off of the horse. Missionary's wife took him into their home, sat him down, filled him full of quinine, tried to fix something for him to eat. They sat and talked a while, and then as the embers of the fire died down, they retired for the night. But as was his custom before retiring, he dropped to his knees beside his cot, the next day was the Sabbath day. All across the mountains of Swaziland, those little preachers would be standing in their pulpits preaching against the awful darkness of witchcraft and sin and superstition. And that missionary took each couple, one by one, put them up there before the throne of God in prayer, got their blessing, put them back into their outstation church, took another young couple, put them up there before God, got their blessing, put them back, took Samuel and his little wife, put them up there before God, and instantly Samuel came straight back. He took him a second time, and he put him up there before God in prayer. And Samuel came straight back. It must be the fever. It must be that I'm tired. I'll feel better in the morning. Missionary rolled into bed to try to sleep. Outside, a great tropical moon started to climb, hour after hour, as the missionary tossed back and forth on his cot. It was almost midnight when he slipped quietly out of bed, scooped up his riding garb and his big old western boots, tiptoed past the burlap curtain into the kitchen area where the dying embers of the fire cast shadows on the wall, pulled on his clothes, started to pull on his big old western boots, and the curtain moved, and there she was with a candle. What's, what's the matter? Where are you going, she asked. Something's the matter with Samuel. I've got to go find out what's the matter. She set the candle down 
the only horse left is the stallion. Are you sure you can hang on to him? If you want to go get him and saddle him, I'll fix you something to take along the way. About 1 a.m. that morning, missionary's wife and two little boys stood outside the kitchen door in the bright tropical moonlight, watched him as he piled up onto the back of that huge gray Arabian stallion, saw it rear, try to wrestle a bit from him, come down bucking, then they saw him put the spurs to it, and they went across the mission in a flash. No time now to take the long way, to ford the Kamadi River where it was shallow, where there was no danger of the crocodiles. Barely time to take the shortcut. Down the mountainside they went at a full gallop, down into the dark waters of the Kamadi River. And God alone held back the death that lurks beneath those muddy waters, they swam the 200 yards of river. They clambered up the banks on the far side into the reed beds and then out across the miles and miles of bushveld that lay towards the Obombo Mountains. That great horse managed to get the bit wrestled away from the missionary. He lay as low as he could behind the saddle horn to keep from being swept off by thorn limbs in the darkness. The horse seemed to catch the urgency of his mission, its breath coming in great even sobs, the froth streaming back across its flanks. Miles slipped by, dogs ran barking into darkened villages. The old men got up in the night and stood outside in the pale moonlight and listened to the sound of a horse running as it had never run before. Behind him, the missionary saw the first white pencil line of light etched on the horizon. Then he saw the first shaft of golden sunlight as it struck the mountains ahead of him. Then they were into the foothills, following the paths higher and higher and higher through the gardens until way up there in a great fork of the tree, that sun clicked into place. Samuel sailed through the air. He landed under that bell. The missionary heard the first sound of the bell. 500 yards away, down by the spring, he came pounding into the outstation. He reined his horse to a stop. He'd seen preachers ring bells all of his life, but he'd never seen a man ring a bell like this man was ringing it. Samuel! Samuel! Samuel never heard him. He had one thought, ring that bell. He was, but Samuel's little wife heard him, she stood there in the yard, the baby clasped to her. She whirled around. There sat the missionary on his horse. She pointed up the valley. Something would have to be done. He wheeled his horse around. Up the mountainside to meet them he went. Chief of Suduga flew straight past him. Get out of here, missionary. You'll get killed today. The missionary stood in the stirrups and he lifted both hands. For an instant, total confusion reigned. Everybody came sliding to a stop. The warriors bumped into each other. For one thing, they'd heard that God had done things for this missionary. They didn't know but what maybe he would do something miraculous like call down lightning on them or, or something like this. And for just an instant, everybody came to a stop. That was all the time he needed. For God 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Swazi, it goes like this. Unkulunkulu, watanda is vikangaga, wanigilin dota na yake, ezelwe yotwa. He started to preach. He started to pour out to him, to, to them, the message pent up in his heart. They stood in amazement. On the granite boulders surrounding the church, the people stood and looked. Then like a living river, down off the rocks they poured. The crowd grew as the people came wandering in. Hour after hour, from the stirrups of the saddle, he told them the entire wonderful story of Jesus. It was late afternoon. That's the peace, the joy, the freedom that we've come to Africa to tell you about. That's what you're trying to burn down there. Instantly, a councilman was, was on his feet. Wait a minute, missionary. I've never heard this story before. If it is as you say it is, I refuse to be part of the burning of that church. I'll stand alone. He marched over and stood by himself. And of course, the missionary saw his opportunity instantly. Those of you that have the courage to stand with this councilman and say what he said, stand behind him. They watched a miracle unfold, slowly, like an old man rising to his feet. The crowd started to move. Every last person shuffled across and stood next to the councilman. Fear filled the eyes of Chief Sutuga, missionary. No man has ever made my tribe forbid, uh, dis, uh, disobey me before. It can't be you. It must be your God. If it's your God, then I too am afraid to... St I too will stand with my people. I won't have anything to do with the burning of that church. Missionary wheeled his horse around. Let's tell Samuel, he shouted. They pounded down into the outstation. It was late afternoon. You know what Samuel was doing? You know what... He you should... He was still hammering away on that bell all day. He had pounded that bell. God told him, ring that bell. Samuel, they want to hear you preach. Samuel preached as if his heart would break. At the close of that day, the first great Swazi warriors came marching forward laid their five-foot war shields down, their spears and their clubs and their battle axes, dropped to their knees, bowed their shaggy heads and their white ostrich plumes, humbly at the feet of Jesus. Chief of Suduga had somewhat to say. My people, I told this man that bell would never ring again. God corrected me. Samuel, in my country, from this day till the end of eternity, never again will that bell be threatened. 
Do you understand me? And old Samuel was on his feet instantly. Down he came, a few more shots on that bell. But the truth of the matter is that in the next six years, on three occasions, Chief from Suduga and his warriors did sweep down on Samuel's church. Each time, they tore it to the ground so that they could rebuild it for him bigger and bigger and bigger to house the multitudes, one under the anointed ministry of that great African preacher. And then one day, out of the night, came a runner, dropped to his knees by Samuel's hut, Samuel shouted for his wife and baby. They took the trail the runner had come. The runner staggered up the mountainside to Chief Suduga's village, whispered something in the chief's ear, and then fell unconscious to the ground. The chief shouted for a councilman. Take charge of the tribe. Carry on with the affairs of state. I'll be gone for ten days this time. Chief, where can we reach you? What message does this man bring? This man tells me that my missionary's God is calling him home. He will answer his God instantly. I must speak to him before he has a chance to reply to his God. You can reach me at the mission station. Chief from Suduga took the trail. Late afternoon, he caught up to Samuel and his wife. They pushed on. Just about dusk, they crossed the Kamati River. Early the next morning at dawn, Forty miles later, they came staggering into the mission station, exhausted. A huge group of Africans had gathered. They sat in silence, waiting word from within the mission home. Chief from Suduga was royalty, an uncle to the king of Swaziland. It was disrespect for him not to greet the people. He pushed his way impatiently past them, knocked on the door. Missionary's wife opened it. Chief from Suduga, can I help you, Chief? They tell me that my missionary's God is calling him home. I want to speak to him. He won't know you, Chief. He's in a coma. He went into a coma about an hour ago. He knows nobody now. Let me see him, the Chief pled. They pulled back the burlap curtains and they brought Chief Suduga in and he stood there where the missionary's fever-wracked body lay tossing restlessly back and forth on his cot. And the old chief stepped forward and reached down and grabbed that hot, fevery hand between his two enormous hands. And the missionary flung himself back across the cot and for an instant the coma broke. And a puzzled look filled the eyes of the missionary. And in a voice that was a whisper, he said, Chief Suduga, is it really you that I see standing beside me? Missionary, listen very carefully to me. We know that your God will grant you any request that you give him. Explain to him, missionary, we have barely learned his name. We, the people of Africa, beg that you be allowed to stay a little while longer. No, chief. 
long ago, I asked him to give me seven more churches in the fever country. He's given me 29 churches down there in the fever belt since that day. Therefore, my mouth is wiped clean. I have no words that I can speak with my God now. Chief from Sudugo stood up, nodded his head. I understand, missionary. I too am a man of honor. As you leave Africa forever tonight, I want you to know this one thing. Samuel's arms will never grow tired. We'll lift them. That bell, missionary, it will ring on every mountainside of Africa. Go in peace. Chief of Suduga turned and walked out of the mission home and sat alone under a thorn tree at the edge of the mission yard, refused to speak to anybody. And like a candle flares up in the moment when it dies out, in the last hours of that afternoon, 24th of May, the missionary rallied his strength. They carried him out into the yard on his stretcher. And everybody clustered as close as they could around in total silence. And for about 20 or 25 minutes, he spoke to them, brought his last blessing and farewell to them. And God's chariot came and bore him home to his reward. But it seemed that he had thrown behind the mantle that he was wearing. For African preachers and missionaries alike seemed to catch it up. They turned and scattered across Africa, determined that bell, it would ring in every mountainside of Africa. And that spirit still drives them to this day. And maybe that explains a lot about your missionaries and Africa. They carried his body just 50 feet away. And there in the shadows of the eucalyptus trees, beside the graves of four of his children, they laid him to rest to await the eternal dawn. The British government conscripted nearly 100,000 Swazi warriors to help fight back the German invasion in North Africa. And when those men were asked who they wanted to lead them as their chaplain, head of the chaplain corps, like one man, their voice came back, give us Samuel. And the military presented him with a bugle, and he learned to play it. For three years in the front line, ministering to the spiritual needs of his nation, preaching across Libya, the Battle of Tripoli, until one day, in those frontline trenches, out of the sun, there came the scream of a bomb. 
A blinding flash and a great chunk of white-hot steel sliced its way across Samuel's face. Instantly, blinded completely in one eye, almost blinded totally, the years that he had run away from seemed to catch up to him overnight, rolled across his head, turned his hair white, broken in health, almost completely blind, back to Swaziland. The missionaries had his big Bible. God's chariot had taken his little wife on to her reward. The missionaries tried to reason with him. You can retire now, Samuel. The church will take care of you. You don't understand, missionary. Long before you were ever born, in that wonderful land of America that they call the land of God, out here in Africa's darkness, I promised him I would preach forever. Forever has not come yet. If I'm not much use anymore, I found a people hiding in the caves one day on the mountainsides. Their fingers were gone. Their noses were eaten away. Let me go to those people and tell them of a God who can heal them of a leprosy of the soul. They sent him free to walk the mountainsides of Swaziland preaching to the lepers in the caves. You know the rest of the story. The rest of it is modern church history in Africa. Samuel's work among the lepers soon grew to such size that the Church of the Nazarene had to station a full-time missionary among them, together with him, Miss Elizabeth Cole from Montana. On horseback, they visited the caves where the lepers... And then they built a leper colony. And it got so big that the Church of the Nazarene assigned senior medical missionary, Dr. and Mrs. David Hind, to the leper work. And then the United Nations stepped in. And then somebody found a cure for Hansen's disease. Too old to be of any use anymore. I said goodbye to Samuel. We had gone to that same mission station. My dad was coming back to America to retire forever. They were having a huge preacher's meeting. The tabernacle was packed. And just before the evening service, I stood talking with a group of the African preachers. Samuel stood no farther away than the piano there, group group of men talking to him and dad walked up to me and bumped me and he said did you notice who Samuel is talking to I turned to look Samuel had been ordained by Dr. J.G. Morrison in 1937 next to him stood the superintendent of Swaziland Simeon Lamini one of our great African holiness preachers Simeon he was the boy that had dashed up over the mountainside to go find the witch doctor, to come and doctor their village. And next to him stood his three brothers, the one that had run and gotten the black goat without a blemish or a mark on it, one of our great holiness evangelists in Africa. And next to him stood the pastor, James uh, Lamini, the pastor of one of our greatest churches over there, once more, a united family through the blood of Jesus Christ. These were the leaders of the church in Swaziland. They were talking of the camp meetings 
the revivals, the general superintendents that were coming, the pastors that were changing. Samuel stood in silence. He was totally blind now. He was no longer a part of this work like he once had been. In fact, he was a little left out. Unnoticed by his four brothers, I saw him put his hand out and touch the tabernacle wall. Unnoticed, he turned, and I watched him as he followed the wall right to the end. Dad didn't say anything, but I saw him watching carefully. He reached the end of the tabernacle, and he just launched out into open space about 60 or 70 feet. And he reached the little white pickup fence there, pushed open the gate, past the four little graves that lie there. He stood beside the grave of that first missionary, lifted his face, and the dying rays of the African sun lit it up. He was fighting a mighty battle. Dad and I took off like a shot. He was praying. Take me home, Lord. I'm no use much anymore. Let me get up there in heaven. Find my missionary. Sit down around a campfire. Tell him all that's happened to the church in Africa since he left us. Dad threw his arm up over the old man's shoulders. He reached out and touched Dad's face. Instantly, he recognized who it was. He called him by his African name. He said, Vusikama, you heard what I prayed? Yes, Samuel, I heard. But when you're gone, where are we going to take the generation of new missionaries coming into Africa to learn what to do in the night when there's no response and they're going to have to learn to just stick with it until God speaks. For a long moment, Samuel was silent. And I saw him shake his, hand, his head. He said, missionary, you were just a young boy way back there when I rang that bell. You've never forgotten, have you? No, Samuel. None of us will ever forget. Thank you for reminding me, missionary. That day as I stood there in the open doorway of my church and that bell hung out there in the sunlight under the tree, I promised him that I would ring it forever. Forever has not come yet. He turned, walked past Dad and I, pushed open the gate, straight for the door of the tabernacle. That night, Dad preached exactly the same message that you have just heard. And in the front row sat Samuel and four brothers. And when Dad brought his message to a close, 
I think every pastor and preacher and evangelist in Swaziland was there. They came to their feet with a great shout that shook the tabernacle. We'll ring it with you, Samuel. We'll hold up your arms. They'll never grow tired. We'll ring it right to the gates of eternity. The huge 2,000 candle power kerosene lanterns started to go out for lack of pressure. It was dark in the tabernacle. Virtually everybody had left. Then I heard bare feet shuffling against cold concrete. Samuel stood in front of me. He called me by my African name, Sipahan. They tell me that in a few days you leave for the great land of America. I want you to do me a favor as you travel that great land. I want you to thank those wonderful people for the sacrifice that they have made that we, living in darkness, might hear the name of Jesus spoken. You tell a missionary that we appreciate their sons and their daughters that lie buried in Africa. And that one day, we're all going to stand up there before the throne of God. And on that day, I'm going to ask for the personal privilege of thanking them myself. We'll see you when you get back. He shuffled towards the door and then he remembered something. He called back to me. Oh, and another thing. You tell him over there on the other side to keep holding the ropes because out here in the darkness on this end, we're still ringing the bell. He got right to the door. He said, we'll be praying for you as you travel. Hurry back. We'll be here. It was not to be. A few years later, I was in Nairobi, Kenya. My telephone rang. I flew thousands of miles to be there. The tabernacle was packed. A regiment of the Swazi military had come. They requested a full military funeral, carrying the body to the grave and interning it. After the message in the tabernacle, a general dressed in immaculate white uniform stood to his feet. He shouted an order, and six men, their rifles upside down and pointed towards the floor, the bolts removed, stepped forward. They unwrapped that beautiful flag of Swaziland across the coffin, red and white and yellow and blue, with a big black and white shield in the middle of it, war shield. The next order was shouted, and effortlessly they lifted it to their shoulders. As drums rolled in a slow half-march, we followed them the length of the tabernacle, and we formed up ranks outside. It was almost dusk. The mist was coming down across the mountainside. Order after order was shouted. Rifles were lifted in the dusk. 
and volley after volley was fired. And then we heard taps way up the mountain somewhere. And they turned and they carried his body outside the tabernacle the full length, pushed open the little white picket fence, and ten feet beyond the grave of my grandfather, they laid him to rest on the mountainsides of Swaziland to await the coming of an eternal dawn. We're all going to be there pretty quick. Won't be long for any of us. On that last day when you get to heaven, get inside the gate and then get out of the way. Get over to the right-hand side. Turn, stop, and watch the crowd coming behind you up out of Africa. Countless millions. And when you see that great crowd from Swaziland coming through the gates, out ahead of them, you'll recognize a tall, proud, young Swazi warrior running flat out. You'll recognize him because in his hand, he's going to be carrying an 18-inch rusted iron bolt. He's going to shoot right past you, straight on up, right to the foot of the throne. And he's going to lay it down at the feet of Jesus in exchange for a crown of pure gold. His name is Samuel Lamini. And about that time, I'm going to try to catch up to him when he turns to come down the ranks of the Church of the Nazarene to thank you. I'll be there to translate for you if you want to greet him. God bless you.